from field to table and flame to fork. The pursuit of the outdoor connection is ingrained deep within one's spirit. The draw to the flame of the campfire is felt from around the world. Why do we hunt? Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. All right, here we are already with episode three of the Campfire Conversations. Uh, this is a little bit of a different spin than our, we're not really experienced at this yet, but our first two episodes, we had JP and I on live with our guest. And this one, I, I did an interview for Talk is Sheep with uh, Sue Tidwell, who wrote an incredible book called Cries of the Savannah and talked about her journey from being somebody who didn't understand or necessarily agree with hunting in Africa to visiting there and doing a complete 180 degree turn. And I, I thought that, that the podcast was so well done and the way she, she was just so passionate about it, that it'd be a great way to repurpose it because it fits one campfire. And I, I sent it to JP to listen to, he's also got her book and he completely agreed. So that's what this podcast is. It's a little bit of a spin from our norm. And yeah, it's, it, it was great. I totally thought it was an incredible, an incredible listen and great conversation to take part in. And what, what were your thoughts on that, JP? You know, I agree. I think, you know, the interview with Sue was, was well done. And, and I think the message that she, she had was, was something that's very relevant to one campfire. Like you mentioned, she was somebody who didn't understand uh, and probably didn't really agree with you know, African hunting or hunt, African hunting tourism. And after having experienced it firsthand, you know, she has done that 180 and she understands the, you know, the nuances of it in a way that I think a lot of people don't. Um, so yeah, I listened to the, the talk is she podcast with her. I thought that was great. And, and I'm currently reading her book cries of the Savannah, which I would also highly recommend to anybody that has any interest at all about, you know, wildlife conservation in Africa. Um, Sue's book really does uh, detail how hunting plays a, a very important role in the conservation of wildlife on that continent. And yeah, for, for somebody who's listening that, you know, maybe doesn't agree with hunting in Africa, you know, have an open mind, pick up the book and give it a read. And and I think you'll probably find that the the reality of wildlife conservation in Africa is, is far more complicated than what somebody who is maybe underinformed may think. Um, but anyway, Sue's book is great. The, the, uh, you know, the, the, the interview with her is fantastic. And I think she does just a great job of, of, uh, communicating her, uh, you know, her reasons for, for embracing, uh, hunting in Africa. Yeah, like I said, she's just so passionate about it. And you hear the emotion in her voice when she starts to recount some of these stories that she's taken part in and in situations that she she was there. Uh, and I love what she says on her book. It says, a non-hunter shares her eye-opening experiences on a hunting safari and invites readers to reconsider what it will take to save Africa's wildlife. And that's, that's relevant, right? Because... You see a lot of grip and grin pictures, and that's all you see is that picture's worth a thousand words. But for somebody who's actually been there, like Sue has, she got to see that not a single scrap of an animal is wasted there and how much the economy is boosted from hunting and how how wildlife is actually turned around in some areas due to, to regulated hunting. Yeah, there's there's some parts of the, of the interview with her that I think really impacted me. Um, you know, one is just, and, and this is also in the book, but the, the disproportionate, uh, um, uh, revenue that hunters generate in Africa relative to other tourists. And, you know, in many areas, it's, it's a couple orders of magnitude more. It's, 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 well, at least in one area that she talks about in other areas, it's, you know, 15 to 30 times more. It, it's quite, quite impressive the the amount of money that comes to africa from hunting and at the very end of the uh podcast she what she said i think was really i i'm not gonna quote her because I've, I've probably got it wrong but she basically said you can't really separate the human aspect out from the conservation aspect in africa 
you know, much of Africa is developing. You've got communities and villages that are impoverished by any Western standard. And they are in competition with wildlife oftentimes, right? For, you know, for land, you know, they, yeah. some wildlife is dangerous to them. Uh, you know, elephants and other wildlife can, can pose a threat to their, their crops if they're, if they're farming. And, you know, she makes the point very well that the money that hunters bring into Africa into these remote communities that would otherwise have no means of generating any kind of revenue uh, puts value on these animals that the local people um, understand and, and therefore translates into them actually advocating and protecting the wildlife as well. So, and it, it, whatever somebody's philosophy is, you, you can't get away from placing value on everything. Everything has a value. And mm -hmm. if you're a poor person in, in rural Africa and, you know, there's lines in the vicinity of your village that have no economic value at all and children are being killed by these lines or people in general, the incentive to keep those lines there is probably very low. But if there's, if there is a monetary incentive to have those animals around, they'll be protected. And some people might not like the idea of that, but that's just how things work. And I think especially in, in, in poor developing countries, such as many countries in Africa, uh, they don't, they don't have the same reality that we do. And, and they've got a different set of issues and problems that we don't. So we, we have to look at things from their perspective and, and not our, our so-called Western, you know, Canadian or American perspective where we're very comfortable sitting in our homes and we don't have the same relationship with wildlife that they do. And I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly it. Right. There's, there, there's a different sort of relationship that, uh, she gets into in this episode. So this is episode three, Campfire Conversations with Sue Tidwell, Cries of the Savannah. Enjoy the listen. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop, or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive. Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Hello, Sue. Uh, welcome to the show, and it's uh, great to finally connect with you. Well, hello. I uh, sure appreciate you having me on here, and I'm really excited to talk with you guys today. Well, Steve, I know you've been... Uh, corresponding a lot with Sue around, you know, with our One Campfire initiative and everything. Um, how about we talk a little bit about how you guys met and how that all came to fruition? Steve, uh, give us some background there. Sure. Uh, basically, uh, obviously follow a lot of uh, hunting and non-hunting uh, groups and pages on social media. And I, I saw a comment... On. I don't remember what it was about, but Sue made a comment. Oh, it was a Jim Shockey, Jim Shockey post. And Sue said that she didn't hunt and was against it for a while. And then, but she supported everything Jim Shockey stood for. And I commented back uh, something along the lines of we're uh, trying to bridge the gap between hunters and non-hunters. You should check us out as well. And basically it went from there. We started uh, following each other and, and chatting uh, in instant messages and uh, found out a little bit more about her, found out about her book, got a copy of the book sitting right here on my desk in front of me. And from what I've read so far, it's absolutely amazing. And I'm truly thankful for the, the time she's going to devote to uh, chatting with us today and dig a little bit deeper. Very cool. So, Sue, let's maybe hit on that. So you talked about sort of being, uh, I guess, did Steve use the word anti-hunting or maybe not for hunting? You know, maybe talk about that evolution. And I know you grew up kind of in a hunting family and your husband now hunts, but can you talk about that evolution for us about from on kind of where you've gone back and forth about on, on the hunting stance and your perspective on that, Sue? Uh, sure. Um, you know, I'm really not anti-hunting by any means. Um, I'm just... I grew up in a hunting family in a part of Pennsylvania that where deer hunting was pretty much religion. So I grew up eating deer meat and all that, 
most of my childhood. So I wasn't really against the sustainable use of wildlife. I I understood it for pencil, you know, for America. Um, I knew that population problems and you know the meat was getting used. But I, but like a lot of other Americans. Um, we tend to lump African animals in a whole different category. We just, we just look at them differently. And I was one of those people, you know, I, I understood how you could hunt a deer and use the meat and all that, but I couldn't quite wrap my head around, you know, hunting a zebra or, you know, these exotic animals of Africa. It just seemed different to me. I was, I was more emotionally attached to those animals. And, um, so, you know, I went to Africa with my husband. Um, well, first of all, because I wasn't, you know, I understand the heart of a hunter more or less because I grew up in that thing. I I don't look at hunters as these evil people. Like a lot of people do. I, I know them to be good, hardworking people who really care about wildlife and care about the environment. And so needless to say, I, I ended up meeting a hunter. I married one and his dream was always to go to Africa and hunt. Um, I also had a dream to go to Africa, but it wasn't to hunt. <laughs> so I thought I was going to be in a, some cushy lodge and, you know, driving through the Serengeti and seeing animals unafraid and all that. But um, I ended up uh, with my husband on this re- very remote part of Tanzania. And um, even though I had a lot of questions and a lot of doubts, um, those were all kind of answered as I was over there. Um, I just, you know, I developed a good friendship with our, um, Tanzanian game scout. Um, I was really fortunate in in Tanzania. They, they, um, they give you a, a game scout goes with every hunting party, um, to make sure everything's legal and to document everything. And we were fortunate to get assigned a young 23 year old, um, female who could speak pretty good English. So, her and I were able to develop a really good relationship. And she, she was like new to the, there was 21 people taking care of four of us. So, um, and she was new. She's the, the game scouts aren't a part of the hunting concession. Um, you know, they, they don't want them to be cause they want them to be, um, unbiased, I guess, you know, to make sure things are legal. So she didn't know any of the people either. So we were kind of instantly drawn to each other and we just became fast friends. And she just taught me so much about conservation and so much about why hunting is so important. And it just started through the time there. I just totally transitioned my whole thought process. So this guide or this... uh, what, what, what did you call her? The She's a Tanzanian game scout. A scout. Okay, cool. And she, so she doesn't work for the hunting concession. She kind of, does she work for the Tanzanian government or like some sort of private uh, organization that they contract out? How does that work? No, she works so, for the Tanzanian government. Okay. And they assign one, like we went there with another couple and the other couple had their own game scout as well. That, you know, one is assigned to them because they travel on their own land cruiser all day long. And then we are on another land cruiser. So we are, we're assigned a game scout and they're assigned a game scout. And neither one of them knew any of the people, the outfitters, they showed up about the same time that we did there. So they were just meeting the outfitters just like we were. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's actually quite a good way to do it actually, to make sure that, you know, to keep, you know, Mm -hmm. you, you as the, uh, the hunter in line, but even more so to make sure that the outfitter is complying with, uh, with the regulations and and making sure they're doing the right thing. So it's actually a pretty solid idea. And again, uh, I, we're going to talk about this and this is one of our things that we're obviously going to explore today about Africa, but you know, that that's being funded by you being there hunting, right? So another job, again, because you are there and spending money in Africa, right? Exactly. I mean, there are so many jobs created by hunting. It, it, it isn't even funny till you really start thinking about, till they pointed it out to me, the trickle-down effect. It, it's just amazing, the trickle-down effect that it has. Yeah, so this is like such an emotive issue. And honestly, like Africa is scary, a scary conversation for a lot of hunters because, mm-hmm. uh, but there's some very solid facts. And I think, you know, today I'm hoping that you can help us explore these. And I, I by no means am an expert on it, but uh, 
you know, it's interesting when you sit down and talk to a non-hunter and I, I've had people that, um, again, I mentioned earlier before we started recording, Sue, that I, professionally I was a pilot. I'd sit on the flight deck and with a basically an anti-hunter, a raging anti-hunter, and then kind of explain Africa the way I perceive it. Now, I haven't been there. So this is my myopic view from somebody that's never been on the continent. So I'm not probably the best one to to articulate this. But, you know, you sit down and you have a conversation. By the end of this flight, I was on with this fellow. We sat there for about four hours together. And, you know, my perspective, and I showed him, you know, why I thought hunting was important and, and, and all aspects around that. And the interesting thing was by the end of it, he goes, well, he goes, I understand it. It makes sense. He goes, but I'm still against killing those animals, you know, but the one thing is he actually had a completely revised perspective, but it is a daunting conversation. And it's not, it's not a one minute conversation on social media. This is a long talk um, on wildlife management and why it's so important in Africa. And I'm really hoping that your trip to Africa and, and your book cries of the Savannah, we can dive into that on, you know, why these, why it's so important and, and give a, you know, kind of a really broad perspective. And I love your perspective in the sense that you come from it from, from a non-hunter's perspective, you're not a hunter. So, you know, not that you're a raging anti-hunter, but you, you're also coming from it with this unique perspective, different than what Steve and I would have, because we, we do go out and we do hunt, right? Yeah, it was, um, it's just amazing the tr the transition and once you learn about Africa, but you are so right. People just don't, people here just don't understand. And it is a long conversation. It's not like one or two little points that can just, you know, make it clear. And um, it's funny you say that about the, the having the, the uh, my husband has a lot of those conversations. My husband is a pilot also. So he has a lot of those conversations in the cockpit too on those long journeys. And and most of the time when people really hear the facts, they come around and are like, well, I, I, I get it now. It makes total sense. Cool. So, all right, well, let's just jump into it. We're kind of, you know, bouncing off the sides of it here, okay. but let's jump into Africa. Like, so, you know, um, maybe let's just start with, um, uh, you know, what, what was the biggest factor when you got boots on the ground in Africa? So you, you know, just to recap, you were, you weren't pro hunting in Africa. You, you know, you were, you had concerns there. One question that came to mind when you said this to me was, are you okay with hunting a grizzly bear in, in North America or hunting a wolf as an example, because you, you got deer hunting sustainability was fine. You're like, okay, this is, this is about, um, you know, a sustainable harvest and you're feeding a family and that sort of stuff. So, what was what's what was your perspective on say grizzly bears or wolves that maybe it wasn't used for sustainability maybe it was uh, population control or or you know something like that what's what, what's your take on that just because that's kind of in line with this okay. you know charismatic megafauna from Africa right if you're shooting a lion or a zebra or an elephant um, what's your take on something like this. You're, it's interesting that you bring that up because it, it is quite interesting actually and maybe I shouldn't admit that here but um, in my 20s I was a total wolf advocate I um, wrote letters I did all the things that we do and then you know years later I find myself in the middle of wolf country and in Idaho and with my husband, and I see firsthand the devastation that unmanaged wolves have caused. I mean, I've seen the 85% decrease in elk in the two counties nearest to us. So that's kind of one of the things that's kind of funny, because I feel like things in your life lead you certain directions. And I feel like I don't believe in coincidences. So I believe that that was also a part of my learning journey and a part of my thing that actually even led me to this book. But I, I, I realized, you know, along with age <laughs> and experience that there's always two sides to every story and there's gotta be some, you, you can't base things on emotions and you've got to look at both sides of it. Cause now that I'm in the middle of Idaho in the middle of wolf country, um, I see, I mean, I still want wolves there. I, I love hearing them when we're camping at night, hearing them howling in the distance. I love that. But I believe we do have to manage them. And you, you just like any other animal, same with bear. I mean, you can't have, you know, bears are overpopulating. They're, they're going into other areas. Um, 
you know, if there's too many, they decimate the other wildlife. I mean, I just believe I've transitioned through the through my research and through my growth, I guess, to understand that we have to have management um, of wildlife. Okay, very help? cool. Yeah, <laughs> it does. And I appreciate that perspective. And it's great. It's great to hear that. And, and you, your comments are safe here. I don't think you're going to get any haters. I, I, I think that, you know, for us as hunters um, and, you know, consumptive users in the backcountry, it's really, um, I guess, uh, uh, heartening to hear this perspective, right? That people mm-hmm. have this perspective. Um, and, and, you know, that's one of the things we're advocating for is just be open-minded and, and uh, you don't have to like what we do, but like, listen to the story, trying to understand. Please. And when we hear this, you know, to me that, and that, that's kind of one campfire, that's the goal of it, right? Is trying to educate people and, and have them see, and they, they, we're not asking them to embrace. We don't want them to go out and, you know, go out shooting wolves. That's not what we're asking people to do. We just want there to be some level of understanding. So mm-hmm. I think it's really encouraging. It's exciting when I hear your perspective. Yeah. Well, yeah. I actually donate a chapter to this in the book because I felt the same way about zebra. So because we we live here on a horse ranch, you know, Rick's, um, we live on the corner of a little small um, ranch, his parents or his um, parents and sister's ranch although we don't ranch ourselves anymore. But um, anyway, so there, we have like 20, 30 horses here. And I was, you know, horses are a part of their work. I mean, they're, they're, they're pets and they, they are part of their life here. So when Rick wanted to hunt a zebra, I was felt this kind of not quite as adamant, of course, but I was against, I was just emotionally attached to the idea of hunting a zebra. So I use that to talk about my transition with the wolves. So in one of the chapters, it it gives me the opportunity to talk about my transition from how I viewed wolf hunting as well and how I have come to learn that you, you got to look at two sides of the story and you've got to, that the truth is usually somewhere in between and that you have to base things on science. So I kind of use that as a way to bring that part of my journey into, to light, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Hunters and non-hunters all want the same thing, right? We, we want to see balance and wildlife on the landscape. The only difference is, is the outcome of that wildlife, right? No, nobody wants to see extinction. We, we want to see a wildlife on the landscape in perpetuity, right? Extinction is, is the last resort. We don't want that. Definitely not. Okay. So, so let's, let's journey to Africa now. So what would you say is the most pivotal factor. Um, now I know Lillian, your scout was a big part of this, but, um, what would you say the, was the most pivotal factor, um, or event or item that you said, wow, I was wrong about Africa. There is a place for hunting here. If you could pick, and there's hundreds of reasons why there should be, uh, managed hunting in Africa. It makes sense. But what, what's the main one for you where you went, wow, this is a game changer. This is why we need to do this. Well, there were several, but I'll start out with the first one. Um, we were traveling along and we came across some elephant bones and of course there were no tusks and they weren't, the elephant wasn't a result of the hunting concession. So they were assuming it, it could have died of natural causes, but we really don't know. It could have been poaching, but it brought up this whole idea of subject of poaching and Lillian, during this whole exchange and this whole time on the ground when we were looking at the bones and everything, explained to me, because uh, I, I don't know, I don't even know how I brought it up or how I stated it, but she brought it up to me that poaching a lot of times is the animals are killed just to make the lives of rural people easier. I mean, it's not always about these, the horns and the tusks and stuff. I mean, a lot of poaching. I had no idea there's so many kinds of poaching. There's um, bushmeat poaching. There's poaching for wood. There's poaching for honey. There's poaching for all kinds of things you would never consider. And she explained all these different kinds of poaching to me and how it's just the the poor local people, village villagers, who are just trying to make their lives easier. She, she explained to me what it's like to live with lions and leopards Um in your backyard and how dangerous they are. And, and elephants too. Elephants are extremely dangerous to live with and they can wipe out 
a villager's crops in one night. His whole livelihood for the entire year can be wiped out in one night. They eat four or 500 pounds of food a day. So you can imagine what an elephant a herd of elephants can do to people. And, and you're not talking about people who can go to the grocery store and buy more food. This is, this is what they need to feed their families. So these poor people are out there with pots and pans, banging on them, trying to keep elephants away from their crops. And of course, that oftentimes can piss an elephant off and leads to, you know, deaths and bad circumstances. But she, she explained to me from the viewpoint of the local people. She explained to me that, because I was really against the idea of hunting leopards and lions, for instance, because um, those are another animal we're so attached to. But um, Lillian explained to me that far more animals die from poisoning than than by hunters. Hunters, it's so regulated. You know, just a few are allotted, and they have to be very old males past the breeding age. And... Um, but poisoning kills everything. You know, like if you're a villager, you got to remember it's a cattle society over there. Um, so um, there's cattle everywhere and and for the villagers and that's their livelihood. So they don't want to live with lions and hyenas and leopards. So what they do is they put poison out and that'll kill anything that feeds upon the carcass and then anything that feeds upon those. So you're talking about killing vultures and all kinds of other small predators as well as the lions and um, leopards. And, uh, so, you know, I, I, I started to see, um, conservation or hunting through the eyes of the local people and how their livelihoods and their welfare is tied to the welfare of wildlife. Um, if, if you give local people a reason to protect wildlife, you know, make them valuable is, 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 as much as people hate that idea that placing a value on an animal, um, it, it works. I mean, if you make a lion worth $50,000, that gives people incentive to find ways to mitigate the danger. You know, maybe they'll put their cattle in bomas at night or, or like fenced corrals. Um, maybe they'll put guards out. Um, maybe they'll try to find other ways. Um, or they'll they'll allow the loss of a of a cat or two once in a while, um, and it gives them the money to build fences. But if the lions are doing them no good but harm, um, there is no reason to protect them. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but about two two months ago, three to understand Africans' conservation, you have to put your you have to put your, you have to put your thoughts and what it would be like to live in Africa for those rural people. Two months ago, three young kids were going after their cattle that were lost, and they were eaten by lions as another brother hid in the tree. He was also injured, but he watched his three brothers get eaten by a lion. Wow. So um, this is the kind of stuff that happens in Africa that people don't want to talk about. And this is the reason we need to make those dangerous and destructive animals um, a, a reason to protect them. Yeah, absolutely. There's the whole poaching aspect of it, as we know, um, right? Which in itself is a big source of revenue for um, for these communities, right? So somebody comes in, um, and hunters are spending money, and then they're hiring these hunting concessions are hunting. Uh, hiring anti uh, anti poaching uh, individuals, and in many cases, I've heard like there's 100, 150 individuals that are hired at one time, and it's all there because the animals are protected uh, by the concession. They want to make sure that they're safe because they there there's value there. Um, so then now they can hire these locals to come in and protect them, um, which will keep the animals safe uh, because they're worth something. If they were worthless. Um, they wouldn't be protecting them. And then people do, do still poach them, right? They, you know, there is international um, trade for, you know, uh, rhino gull and rhino horn uh, and, and elephant tusks and that sort of stuff, as we know. So um, it's also a source of revenue um, and a huge uh, employer, right? As an example, Lillian was getting paid because you were there, right? Exactly. 
you know, and you got to remember bushmeat poaching. I mean, people don't talk about much that I didn't even know about bushmeat poaching till mm-hmm. I was over there. But I mean, bushmeat poaching is a multi-billion dollar business. I mean, um, wild game in the cities of Africa is is a high commodity. So what, I mean, some of the poaching is done for subsistence. They, they kill a zebra to eat it themselves. A lot of times they kill it and then sell it to the cities and stuff. So bushmeat poaching is, and when you destroy game, you're destroying the, you know, the carnivores that feed upon it. So it's, mm-hmm. there's just a lot of different kinds of poaching. And that's what I, I kind of learned more than, I mean, that was one of the main things I learned through, through Lily. And and another thing about hunting um, in the poaching situation is Lily explained to me that poachers do not want to operate in a hunting concession. It's just too dangerous for them. You know, you've got hunters, we had, we were, we were out there was 560 square miles of territory and you had us traversing these, you know, two land cruisers full of armed people traversing this land all day long. Um, and so it's just too dangerous for poachers. So Lillian explained that they don't like to operate in hunting concessions and also, which I never would have ever considered this until I was there, but the game concessions are positioned in like, okay, so we were on the border of Ruaha National Park and the game concessions, the, the game reserves are positioned around the outside of that. So they actually strategically place game reserves to act as a buffer zone. So that gives, there's like a line of defense that the poachers have to get through to get to those game, those national parks. And it also is an overflow area, like in national parks, you know, the animals are, if they get overpopulated, they overflow into the game reserves. But it also is a buffer zone. It's it's act created like a buffer zone to keep poachers away from the parks. Yeah, yeah. And so they're, they're being very clever about, uh, how they're managing it as well. Some countries, obviously, uh, a number of countries in Africa obviously have banned hunting, Kenya being one of them. Um, obviously, Tanzania has not. It, it's very open there. And you said you were on the the Ruaha National Park. Is that where you were? Yeah, we were right on the edge of it. Yeah, there was a. Uh, we were on the Mozambi Riverbed or the Mozambi River. It was dried up when we were there. But yeah, that that I was literally our tent was probably what twenty yards from the river, dried up river. And, um, right across there was the park. Hmm. Okay. So it's interesting. I was reading about Tanzania and they're saying about only one third of the population has electricity. So, um, one of the big threats to Africa now is this emerging middle class that, uh, I read a stat that half the world's population growth over the next three decades, um, is going to be in Africa. Um, and six of the world's fastest economies, um, six of the 10 fastest growing is in Africa. So there's this emerging middle class. Look at Kenya. They're putting a, uh, the Chinese are putting a massive railway uh, through the middle of uh, a rail network through the middle of their national parks. So it's fragmenting habitat. So there's this huge risk of habitat loss. Um, and Tanzania was one of them that, that there's the Celis game reserve and they're putting this massive hydroelectric electric dam in there. It's supposed to flood twice the size of these, uh, size of Salt Lake City and um, obviously displace all those animals, right? So there's this massive habitat loss threat that's kind of the new threat to Africa. And, you know, hunting is a huge source of revenue. So that's kind of one of the the arguments that there is this opportunity to protect um, these animals. And there's a commercial uh, aspect of it as well. But if you take away the hunting, um, you've lost that opportunity. So when you were there, like talk, talk a little bit about what you've seen there. So obviously you had your scout, you had the hunting concession. Um, you know, I get in this argument all the time that, you know, this feeds communities, um, you know, and uh, I guess that's one of the things that I get in arguments with is people argue that, no, that the locals don't eat the food, that meat goes to waste. Um, you know, when your husband, uh, you said he shot a zebra, I don't know what else he got, but, you know, what was your experience like that with that, with, um, you know, with the meat and the locals and, and the employment um, and the communities? Did you see, experience any of that? What was that like, Sue? Tell us what that looked like on the ground for you. Okay, well, I, I'll, well, okay, let me first tell you, there's 21 people taking care of four of us. We were in such a remote camp 
that literally our water came from a three foot hole in the ground that was dug into the riverbed. And they would scoop it out um, bucket by bucket, fill it into things. Then they would crawl up a scaffolding and dump it into a tank so that we had water. Um, it, it was just unbelievable when you see the work involved in living in such a remote place and, and just simple, simple day-to-day -day activities. I mean, once I learned what was involved in me having a warm shower, I was just like, oh my gosh. I mean, I was guilt-ridden every time I got a shower and I made them really, really short. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, um, but and since Masimba Camp, it was Lion Camp or Masimba Camp, um, it, it wasn't, uh, the day they did the tour camp was another one of my eye-opening moments. So we did this tour and I saw the water hole where our water was coming. I realized how they were carrying it and heating it over a fire and carrying it up a scaffolding and dumping it in a thing so I had could have a shower. I saw how they were ironing my clothes um, to keep the the um not only to but basically to keep the parasites off them because they're washing my clothes in that same water that's coming out of that riverbed um when i saw that was involved i saw all the the zebra hanging they we there was no refrigeration so we were so remote we were four hours away from the even the nearest village so like a lot of hunting concessions can take the meat straight to the villages we couldn't so all the meat was dried what well, we didn't eat that night for dinner um, we, they dried it. It was like socks hanging on a clothesline. I mean, there was just drying everywhere. And then they would take it home at the end of the season, I'm sure. Cause all these people are there for like the whole season. They don't see their families for months. Um, so as we're going on this tour, I'm seeing you have somebody taking care of generators. You have two or three cooks. You have somebody washing clothes. You have somebody, um, taking care of our tent, you, you have just all these people doing these things. And then at the end of the tour, um, I don't even know how it came out. And he says, well, this will all be gone as soon as you guys leave. And my heart just fell in my, I mean, I just was like, what? Cause I had already, was already atta attached to Masimba camp. And I was like, how can you be destroying this little, it was my little sh Shangri-La, you know? But he says, we destroy because if we don't, poachers would move in during the off season and we can't have that. He says, but don't worry. He says, it takes 30 villagers, 30 days next season to rebuild it. They, they will hire 30 villagers from the local um, village and they will come and they will stay a month and they will recut the roads and they will be rebuild the huts and they will reset up the bathrooms and the toilets and the, the things that they have there for us. I mean, all that will be rebuilt by the the village, nearest village, which is our go-go. That was our um, head tracker. It was his village. And then Joel went on to explain. He says, do you realize we don't have vegetables here, right? So we buy all of our vegetables in the city. All the vegetables we serve you, we're, we're spending money in the city. Um, you've You've used plane, you used a plane to get here. You used taxi service. You stayed in a hotel. You, um, we have to, the animals you get have to go through all these processes and regulations. And he just started telling me all the trickle down effect of that one camp and our hunt. And it was just amazing when I thought about it. And I, yeah, for sure. Sorry, hunters, I, I'll just say one more quick thing. I don't want to keep droning on. Sorry, but um, <laughs> uh, sometimes I don't know where to stop. I'm sorry. Just interrupt me if I go on. But um, it, it, there's a lot of different studies, but the um, there is like it takes way more photo tourists or general tourists um, to produce the same amount of money a hunting tourist does with way much more um effect on the environment. I mean, hunters don't care about fancy stuff or lodges or all that stuff. So um, their imprint on the land is way less than the photo tourists have. And it takes way, because they pay so much more money. It's like some it's 16 to one, sometimes 32 to one, one place it was 1600 to one. So it's kind of crazy when you look at the statistics. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to, uh, ask you about there and when i rudely interrupted you my apologies and and by no means stop because uh, this is fa fantastic what you're oh, sharing yeah. with us and 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 that's one thing that i was reading about was that 
a lot of the anti-hunting advocates will argue that um, uh, we'll just replace it with photography. And one of the big arguments that I've read is that, well, a lot of these places, like you, for example, um, you flew to a very remote area with this remote camp that was temporarily set up. And a photographer is not going to go there. They're going to go to the, like the ultimate picture spot along with other people, but these remote areas. So what it's doing is it's spreading the economic imprint um, way further in the economy. And it's going to go to these remote areas where there's very few people, a uh, lot less game in many cases as well. Because And it's not, uh, they can't market that to the photography community because people just aren't going to go there. They're going to go to the, like the really hot spot places. So it's done a really good job of diversifying uh, areas that are not well used. And then what happens is those areas normally um, that they're being supported now by a hunting concession because there is a lot of money being spent there. There's going to be other economic competitors such as farming or, you know, uh, maybe mining or uh, other, other items. And it's going to take away from the economy of the hunting and then it's habitat loss for those animals. So those animals are going to die anyway, because they don't have that place to live because there's going to be, uh, maybe have a farm in that area or something as an example, agriculture, that sort of thing. Right. So. Yeah. You've, you've hit the nail on the head as far as, as of all of these other things I've talked about already. Um, they are actually just, they're not even the main thing about hunting. The main thing that hunting does is preserve habitat in its natural state. That is the number one thing I learned. And I didn't learn it by reading in a book. I learned it by riding on the back of a land cruiser with tsetse flies eating me to death or sucking the blood from me, um, scorching sun. Um, you, the animals were afraid of us. It's not like a wild, it's not like, you know, the Serengeti where the animals are used to people. They run. I mean, I have so many pictures of butts disappearing into the bush. I mean, I don't have a lot of good pictures of animals from over there because they were running from us. Um, and they weren't, they weren't as populated as the national parks. I mean, so what I came to learn anything and feel in my bones, deep down in my bones, um, was that, um, these are areas that not most tourists would want to go. I mean, I love the excitement of it, but, um, not every tourist would want to live like that. Not every tourist would want to sleep with lions pooping outside their tent at night and hearing them lions roaring at night. And just, I mean, laying in your tent thinking you're like a, you know, a shish kebab or something. And, um, but anyway, so hunting does more than anything, protect habitat in its natural state. It gives, people a reason not to it's like anything if you have a ranch you have to make it productive so if you can make it productive by selling you know a few tags of a deer on it then maybe you're going to let the habitat be wild if you can't make money that way you're liable to tear down the trees um plant some some crops or maybe put a bunch of cattle there it's the same thing in africa i mean like you said earlier, the population is just growing like crazy and they're wanting, you know, more cattle, more cattle and more crops. And it's the hunting concessions are protecting that and keeping the habitat valuable in its natural state. And I think it's, gosh, it protects way hunting areas. I can't remember the statistic right now, but it's way outnumbers what um, the national parks protect. Yeah, it's amazing. It, it, it's, uh, you know, a lot of the reading I've done around this is uh, um, in, yeah, what did they say? In 2007, trophy hunting areas in sub-Saharan Africa were estimated to conserve 344 million acres of wildlife habitat. Uh, and that exceeds the total size of the region's national parks by 22%. So, you know, you can't get much better of a stat than that, right? It's uh, exactly. It goes to show you how much land is is at the hands of these guided hunts and and uh, making wildlife valuable um people see the value in it and they want to protect those animals um, because they're they're worth something otherwise and it's scary to think what the poaching community would do if there wasn't you know wildlife hunting concessions protecting them oh it just it just breaks my heart every time i see i mean it's like a knife in my heart every time i see another propaganda or something else against hunting. Cause I just, you know, and I didn't just go, I didn't just listen. I mean, I listened to all this stuff and I felt it was true in my heart, 
but I didn't just accept everything that was said. You know, I came home, even though I felt that it was right, I backed it all up. I mean, I researched and researched to make sure what I was feeling in my heart was, was right. And I, I feel strongly behind it. You know, I've read a lot of articles about, um, the, you know, the anti stuff, but you'll notice they never talk about, um, habitat. They, they, don't mention that the wildlife is eaten, that it's still used. They call it these trophies, but they don't mention that the, this food goes to feed, that they're old males past their breeding age. They don't mention that um, the meat, all the meat is consumed. I mean, that's just a few things. But, you know, to go to go back to the tourist thing for a minute, I had always wanted to go to Africa as, you know, because I was infatuated with Africa. But if I had gone without Rick, I would have flown into Arusha, the big city of Tanzania, and I would have gone to the national parks that were only a few hours away. There was like five or six of them right within, oh, I think five or six hours. I would have gone there. I would have seen all this wildlife and, you know, um, that wasn't afraid of me. I would have gone home and swam in a pool during the afternoon. I would have been and all these things. I would not have paid the money and taken the time to get to where we went. So... I mean, that's just the reality of it, of it, um, how hunting protects, you know, those vast areas that aren't, aren't suitable for photo tourists. Yeah, that's uh, certainly a very compelling argument and, and a very valid one. Cause I hear that a lot. I hear people saying, you know, why don't you, why don't, why don't we just do photography? I'm like, well, mm -hmm. a photographer is not going to pay a hundred thousand dollars to go and photograph a lion. That's just a fact. So, you know, so there's the economic aspect of it, but then it's like, okay, so, but they, they'll pay a thousand bucks. Okay. But then we need a hundred of them. So, you know, instead of one person on the landscape, we have a hundred people on the landscape, right? So it's, and of course, what does that do to habitat and what does that do to the lions? And, and one lion dies because that person dropped a hundred thousand us dollars. Um, and yes, a lion had to die for that to happen, but look at all the money. I think in, in Tanzania, the, the, stat I heard is that 60% of income um, for their wildlife management authority goes uh, comes from trophy hunting. So, you know, who's going to pay for that? Is the wildlife photographers going to pay for the uh, uh, wildlife management authority um, with, with their revenue? It, it's just, it's not sustainable, right? They don't have enough, there's not enough revenue to do that. No, they, they need both. You can't have one, you know, I'm not trying to say by any means, or no, nobody I don't think is trying to say that you eliminate one f source of income over another. We need both. We need photo tourism and general tourism to protect those parts and bring in that kind of money. But you also need the hunting tourism. Um, you need you need everything you can do to, to, um, bring jobs and, um, sustainability and protect habitat. I mean, you can't just get rid of one thinking one is going to do all the things we need both. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So Sue, let's jump into your book and talk a little bit it, about the evolution of that. And first of all, let's start with the name. So cries of Savannah, how did, how did that come about? Now I've kind of heard a little bit about your, uh, you lying in the tent and the, the things you're hearing and, <laughs> and the feelings you were having. Um, is that where the name comes or kind of where's the, uh, where does the name of your book come from? And, and let's jump into, into talk a little bit about your book now. Okay. Well, cries of the Savannah, I mean, I tell you, there's just nothing like laying in a tent and you hear that lion roar on outside and the hyenas, the hyenas are just amazing. And then you hear the hippos and the elephants. I mean, it's scary. It's, it's, you know, you're like petrified, but at the same time, you're just, oh my gosh, you're just so enlivened by it. And just, it, it just, I just can't even put it in words. But so I came to fall in love with the cries of the savannah as I call it I mean every night was like a new I called it the African symphony because every night it was a new symphony it you know depended what animals were doing what at what time and you know once in a while a lion wouldn't be there or you know or the elephant we wouldn't hear him one night but every night was a little different and we'd wake up in the morning and we'd talk about what we heard during the night and it was just just I just loved it I just loved hearing the cries of the savannah and I just it just Oh, I, I, it just, it just touches me. And then the other part of that is the more I learned and the more research I did, and, and I don't know if I've 
told mentioned this yet, but the book did result from a, you know, as I was learning all this and I, my friendship grew with Lillian, um, I made a promise to her that I would try to help people understand because they, they saw the writing on the wall. They could see this anti-hunting stuff and what it was doing to them and the wildlife. And so we, they were deeply concerned about it. So I promised Lillian that I would do whatever I could to help people understand. Well, I came home and I tried talking to people here and there and da, 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 but it, it wasn't enough. And I finally, a point in my life um, when Rick took the new job and I, I finally had time to just dedicate to this book and the, the cries of the Savannah is what developed from that promise. But the cries of the Savannah itself, the name refers not only to the cries of the night, but to the cries for the world to awaken. So, you know, this sound, may sound corny, but here's my line, you know, I am not the same having heard the cries of the Savannah, not only their savage songs, but the cries for the world to awaken, to understand the hard truth needed to ensure their cries forever remain a part of wild Africa and not just ghostly echoes from a distant past. I know that wow, sounds that's a little corny, but that is how I feel in my heart. That's powerful. One of the, like, talking about the cries of the Savannah there, Sue, uh, you sent us a couple articles for one campfire to post and truly thankful for that. But reading the, the African symphony one, one of the things that grabbed me, I didn't even think of was the sound of a hippo. When Rick talks about it, he like a, <laughs> a, a deep bellowing and his best guess was a hippo. I had no idea they would vocalize like that. That just goes out, outside of my, my, my thought there. <laughs> Yeah, it's and they're so distinctive, so you know exactly what they. I mean, a lot of the sounds you have no clue what they are, but the hippo, you know. And we had a hippo move. We had a little puddle, like a about a fifteen foot puddle that was right down from our tent, um, left over from the riverbed. And one of the hippos, we, there was a hippo pole, like thirty. Um, what we called the hippo pole. There was a, about a hundred foot stretch of water still left in the river, about three hundred yards away, and so there was about twenty some hippos there. This survived in there. Well, this hippo apparently um, had a falling out with a big guy and was kicked out of the hippo pole. And so he had to move into our puddle to survive. So we literally had, we named him Willie because we did like Americans do. We named him and he moved into the puddle beside our tent. So we had to be extra careful because um, you never want to get between a hippo and their safety zone, which is water. So we had to be very careful about where he was at. But um, yeah, he lived in the hippo uh, or he lived in the pond like 20 yards from us. And so we could hear him at night and they were, most of the hippos are out feeding at night and you can hear them bellowing and stuff. Wow. That's, that's cool. So when you think back now romantically to Africa and everything that you've experienced, what, what stands out the most? Like, you, you know, you, obviously you came home and it changed your life. You wrote a book about it. Uh, you're going on podcasts, you're talking about your experience, but what, what stands out the, the most for you? Is it the conservation piece uh, or is it uh, like, is it the, the experience itself? Like seeing the animals or like what really resonates with you when you think back to it, if you think one thing, what is that that stands out the most? I think, of course, you're infatuated with the animals. I mean, they're just amazing. But I think just as much, if not more, it's the people. I mean, the people. I love the people. I mean, I feel like we were so blessed to be in this position with these 21 amazing Tanzanians and develop because we were there almost, you know, over three weeks and you're with them all day long. And I, we, you d I developed a relationship with them. I mean, even the ones that couldn't speak English, um, you, you can still communicate. Plus I, I did learn a lot of Swahili or tried to, T Lillian was a good teacher. And then everybody else jumped on the bag. Right? Once they knew I was, um, trying to learn Swahili, I had everybody teaching me words. So it was pretty interesting, but I just, they're just so happy and just, um, so just generous and they would bring me little gifts of like a, a tuft of lion hair or a porcupine quill they would find or um, things like that. I mean, I just can't tell you how much I appreciated the people and the friendships that we made there. 
Very cool. So you made this commit to, commitment to Lillian, and I can I can hear the emotion in your voice when you talk about the 21 people. Um, obviously, these people impacted you greatly. Do you stay in touch with Lillian? I do. I do. Yep. She read the whole book and any, she is, she's young, you know, so she has a mind like a still trap. So anytime I couldn't remember the name of a river or I couldn't remember something, I, you know, thanks to the internet, um, it has its downfalls, but it also has its, uh, it makes the world a smaller place. But I mean, sometimes she'll be out of touch for two weeks at a time when she's out in the bush, you know, on poaching patrol or something. But, um, then she'll answer me. And sometimes I get an answer in 30 seconds. I mean, it just depends, but she, um, yeah, she kind of approved, made sure she read everything and made sure I had everything right and accurate. So, and how's her English and everything? Sue? is she, uh, she she, she speaks very good English. I mean, um, she also speaks Swahili and very well, of course, but, um, she, her English is, was good enough that we could have really easy conversations. Like the, the people we were with had a game scout. He tried really hard. His name was Nico. And he spoke some English, but it was very broken and difficult. So converse in conversations with Nico were very were, were, were forced. Do you know what I mean? But with Lillian, it's an easy conversation. It's um, you know, she just and she's just you know fun and you know anyway you'll you'll learn more about her if you read the book. But um, yeah, she she has pretty good English and made conversations really easy. Cool. So next question, the obvious one is, are you going back? When's your next trip to Africa? What's the plan there? <laughs> We're supposed to go back in May because this, this was supposed to be a once in a lifetime experience. But just as a warning to anybody who thinks that that's going to happen, if you go to Africa once, you're never going to be happy with once. So um, we are going we're going back, but this time, unfortunately, we are going to a different country just because Rick wants to see different places and experience something different. I'm torn about that. There's a part of me that, um, what, but you know, you can never recreate that first thing. I still do want to see Lillian again and Raphael and Joel and all them. I hope to see them all again someday in person, but um, I don't think we'll be going right back to right where we went because a lot has changed. If you read the book, a lot has changed there too because of things that have happened, but um I find out it you'll find out at the end of the book, but, um, but yeah, so we're going back again and, um, learn, learn about it in a, a different part of Africa. Where are you guys hoping to go? I think this next time it's Mozambique. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've so heard, I've heard that you go once it's, it's not going to happen. You're, you're going multiple times and I don't know if I told you, Sue, but Kyle knows in 2018, I think it was, I, I entered one of those draws you see on, on social media and like one in 10,000 chance to, to win a trip. And I actually won a all expenses paid minus airfare safari in Southern, in, in South Africa. Oh wow! And, and we were going to go to Limpopo. And of course we, we, we booked for September of 2020 and well, I'm, I'm still waiting. So <laughs> if we're going on, three and a half years we were supposed to like literally we were going to go the first week of September in in uh 2020 and things came down in what March or April so yeah that sucked we we were looking forward to it it was like six six days seven nights or whatever it was but yeah then my my father-in-law has been to Africa hunting I'd say 15 20 times and he said the same thing i was gonna go just once and here, <laughs> here i am and he's he goes almost yearly and he said if, if you're gonna go be ready to you're going more than once so yeah yep. it, it doesn't surprise me i've, I've heard that it bites be, be prepared because i know it's kind of funny because rick and i really had to come up to do this um we really had to we, uh, we you know we had a couple rentals we sold a rental house we sold our mules our pack mules we sold um our camper we did all kinds of stuff to make this happen so it was supposed to be a once in a lifetime trip but like i said you you can't just go once you know you can go you know but you got people got to realize that you can go to africa and hunt like some of the animals like the planes game and stuff for the price of going to Hawaii. So it doesn't have to be this um, thing mm -hmm. that 
cost 50000 or $80,000. It doesn't have to be that. You can go very reasonably. And that's, that's right. what I want people to understand too. That's right. That was something I got sent a price list and I was like, oh boy, some, some was honestly more expensive than I figured, but others were just like, wow, I really didn't think it'd be that cheap. And that just comes with a, a well-managed concession, right? And, and managing for abundance on the landscape. And that's what hunters do. Exactly, exactly. And whether you're hunting in Impala, which are very prolific, you know, and, and everywhere, you're still getting experience. I mean, maybe Impala is only going to cost $400, but you're still in Africa and you're still seeing all these other animals and you're still experiencing everything. It doesn't matter what animal you're hunting. So, I mean, you know, I, I just encourage everyone to, I mean, I'm not trying to turn people into hunters, but I just encourage, you know, people to try to experience it for themselves or, or to go to Africa in some other way. Very cool, Sue. So, um, I guess Mozambique is on, that's the plan, but with COVID now and everything that's going on in Africa, there's no short-term plan. So I guess that's kind of up in the air. Are you writing, you know, part two of cries in the savannah <laughs> or uh, are there any other aspirations for uh, oh my obviously gosh. this is my husband right now would kill me if i said i was writing another book he's tired of <laughs> he's missing his wife i mean you can't tell like he'll start talking to me and my mind is still in africa so like I have to like snap to it to hear what he's saying. And I have just been totally engrossed in this for three years now. It took me two years to write. And I had no idea the process of marketing and, you know, editing and finding a cover. And I had Hunter's Inc. who luckily, um, Jocelyn, who's the editor of Hunter's Inc., luckily felt really strongly in my book. And um, sh she ended up taking over as editor. And so her and her husband, they all edited it and um, made sure it was accurate. They live in Namibia. So, and my artist, the cover artist was from Namibia. So I've tried to keep most of the money in Africa. And, um, but anyway, so with their help and stuff, it really helped. It, it's a hard process doing a book. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I, I don't imagine. know a couple of people, who knows? I'm never going to say never. But once I get through this and, and uh, we'll see how it goes, um, there might be another one. <laughs> oh, I absolutely. Cool. So I love the cover photo. It's just like. I, it grabbed my attention when I first saw it online and like, I'm staring at it right now. It's just, it grabs you and that's really, really well done. Oh, I think she did a marvelous job. I mean, I, I originally, you know, cause traditional publishers weren't really interested in me to be honest because I'm a first time author and, um, I had basically no following. So, um, I did the self publishing route and, I had a picture of a acacia tree and a lion under it. That was my cover. And then when Jocelyn from Hunter's Inc. came on board because she felt so strongly in the pro on the project, she said, we need to do a new cover. And then she brought this artist on board and, and they showed me like three mock-ups. And I was just like, oh my gosh. I mean, that one just spoke to me. It just, it just, I'm like you, it just grabbed me. And I was just so excited because I just think it really, I just think it really does a good job. That's stunning. So if somebody wants to get the book, uh, follow you, uh, learn more about Africa, where do they go? How do we get the book? I'm, I'm going to order it now. I, I, I've read, I actually read a, a bunch of it online, but I've just, I, it doesn't work for me. I gotta, I gotta have a physical copy. So how do we get the book? <laughs> I'm like you, I have to have a physical copy. Um, it's on Amazon. So just type in cries of the Savannah, um, and Sue Tidwell, or you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Sue Tidwell writer. Um, on Facebook, I think it's just Sue Tidwell. And um, I, I try to post every day um, something about Africa or a little fact or something. So if you're following me on one of those things, and then you'll also, you know, see posts about the book once in a while too. But, um, but yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I'd love it if you'd support me and buy the book and help um, spread the word and educate people about Africa. 100%. I'm, I'm buying the book for sure. I'm looking forward to reading it. And uh, yeah, we will definitely share this. And uh, I want to well, congratulate you on the book. It's uh, fantastic. And I, like I said, I have read uh, a, a bunch of it online. 
uh, and really enjoyed it. It's really captivating and your photography is amazing. I've, I've also checked out your Insta stuff. And so really excited and just really grateful that you're telling the story to me. Um, you know, hearing it from your perspective is really, really, uh, for me, that's, uh, you have such a unique perspective compared to, you know, where I come from. And I just love hearing it from the words from your mouth, basically. So. Well, I, I just appreciate this opportunity so much to uh, talk a little bit about Africa and Kaiser Zafana. As you can see, I'm I'm passionate about the people I met there and the people of Africa and the wildlife and their their lives are intertwined. I mean, you can't you can't protect wildlife if you also don't make um, if you don't take care of the African people as well. They both have to benefit for wildlife management to work. But so anyway, I appreciate this opportunity and. Um, it was really enjoyed talking with you. Likewise, Sue, uh, appreciate it. And uh, we'll, we'll be sure to share this with our listeners and, uh, and uh, yeah, we're, we're going to have you back on. When you can get back from Mozambique. We're going to have you back on and uh, maybe we can uh, try and get Lillian or one of your friends on too. That'd be really cool to. Yeah. She you know, would probably do that. She would, you know, I know I'd mentioned it before and she said it was, she was really nervous and she was about, cause somebody else had asked about her being on a podcast and, she said she was nervous about her English. And I said, oh, Lillian, I think, I think your, you know, your English would fine. You do fine. You know? So anyway, yeah, that'd be a great idea. Yeah. It'd be cool. And the two of you on there, like having you, you know, your, your friendship there and being able to, you know, she'd feel much more comfortable too. And then, mm -hmm. you know, it'd be, it would be really good to get the perspective of both you collectively. I think that that would be something really neat. Like it'd be great to have her, but I think the two of you on would be even better. So. Oh yeah. I never even thought of that. That'd be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, uh, Sue. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time and I really enjoyed our listen today and, and I learned a lot and it's just, I just love hearing it from the passion in your voice and the excitement and, and uh, you know, how emotionally charged this is for you. It's, it's really cool to hear. So thank you for taking this time today. Well, thank you, Kyle. And thank you, Steve. I sure appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Awesome. You're very welcome.